Welcome to Grace Community Church downtown. We are so glad that you're tuning in tonight. Um, we are just praying for you today that you would just feel the Lord speak to you, that he would just comfort your heart um, as we are still far away from each other. Um, yeah, that he may just remind us that we are his family um, and that he is our church um, more than we are in just a building and that we would just keep encouraging one another as things just have to keep pivoting. Um, so to that fact, uh, we are just hopefully a week away from getting to see each other in person. So next week, July 26th, we are going to meet in person um, at Old Breck. Uh, and we are going to get to see each other, hopefully. Uh, we obviously love to give the details because there's lots of questions, and we have those questions. Um, we're still nailing things down, so we will be providing those details by email um, on the app and obviously through community group leaders. So please just be on the lookout this next week. Um, we will get something, um, even on our Facebook. So just we'll get something out to you, so just be on the lookout. And, um, yeah, we're excited that we will get to see each other um, soon. So those are kind of the quick announcements I had for today. So let's just dive into Scripture. Um, we're going to read Exodus 16, 1 through 5. They set out from Elm, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elm and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, Downtown Church. Pastor Steve here. It's good to be with you here for a sermon tonight. Uh, sure look forward to being able to worship together. We're hoping to do that next week on the 26th, as Victoria mentioned, and uh, it'll be an outdoor service where we look forward to being able to be together, uh, hear sermon together, have worship together, and you'll be able to hear more details about that soon. But in the meantime, uh, we'll have service here tonight. I'm glad to be with you here online. If you're a guest and not part of Grace Community Church downtown, we'd also like to welcome you and say we're glad that you're here with us tonight and worshiping with us. And we hope that for all of us, whether you're part of Grace or visiting with us here online, that you hear from the Lord tonight, from the Word, and hear something encouraging, uh, that you hear something about the Lord that really meets you where you are. We are in our sermon series on the book of Exodus, uh, working through this book uh, over the summer. And before we launch into tonight's sermon, I kind of want to give us a reminder about the context, the overall context of Exodus and the flow of Exodus. So the first half of the book largely focuses on uh, God delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's the first half of the book, uh, roughly 18 chapters or so, where God sees the Israel as in bondage to slavery, and he does all of these miraculous signs to ultimately uh, deliver Israel from this bondage and the slavery in Egypt. 
Then as you move into the second half of the book, it, we see the second kind of part of the, the, the text unfold, where God is not only now delivered them from slavery, but he's delivering them for a purpose. He's delivering them for a purpose. There are several places in Exodus that highlight this. Exodus 1, 7 highlights this, um, talking about how as uh, Israel was in the land of Egypt, they were uh, growing a number, multiplying, and filling the land, and that's uh, a way of echoing Genesis 1, where God creates Adam and Eve and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, so in a way, God is saying right at the beginning of Exodus that God's people, his covenant people, are once again going to represent him on earth. They're going to bear God's image on earth, and they're going to be his conduits for receiving blessing, but also blessing people within the world. But we also see this in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6 really states this powerfully. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here in Exodus 19, in the latter part of the book, God is saying, He's going to raise up Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And as priests, this whole nation would represent God to the nations of the the earth. And as they lived and obeyed God's laws and obeyed his commands, they would experience his presence and they would also then experience his rich provision and his blessing. But then they would also be a blessing to the nations of the world. So God has delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt in the first half of the book, but in the second half of the book we see God giving them a purpose. He wants them to serve him and to therefore be priests to the to the nations and to receive God's blessings but also uh, to be a conduit through whom God's goodness and blessing would be extended into the world. So, that's just quick overview of the book again a reminder of the large flow of the book and where we are in the series so far is that we've spent most of our time talking about the first half of the book. We've gone through uh, God delivering uh, Egypt or Israel from slavery in Egypt. That's where we've been so far. And last week was kind of the pinnacle sermon of God delivering uh, Israel from slavery in Egypt. God had caused all these plagues, these signs to come into Egypt to ultimately break Pharaoh's will so that Pharaoh would finally let God's people go and release them from slavery. And after this last plague, Pharaoh finally does let the people go. And so Israel's rejoicing. They're going out uh, into the wilderness thinking they're free. But all of a sudden, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's hard-hearted. God hardens his heart. And so Pharaoh runs out into the wilderness to get the people back. I need my, my labor back. And so he chases them out in the wilderness. Israel is caught between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. And Israel is in a panic. God miraculously opens up the Red Sea so that Israel can walk through to the other side. And as Pharaoh and his army pursues them into the Red Sea, God then causes the sea to close over them. And Pharaoh and his army is no more. And so this is where we pick up with this week's sermon. Uh, This week's sermon, we're starting to pivot to the second half of the book. And we're going to move closer to this time when Israel receives God's law, God's commands for how to live, how to experience his presence, how to be God's representatives on earth, how to experience his covenant blessing, but then also to be a blessing to the nations of the world. We're pivoting to that part of the book. And specifically for this week, what we will see are two things. There are two episodes we want to focus on for tonight. The first is this. Just after crossing the Red Sea, Israel breaks out into this really powerful moment of worship. 
There's a powerful moment of praising and worshiping God for delivering them from Pharaoh at the Red Sea. So we want to focus on that. There's some important thoughts there for worship for us. But secondly, we want to look at Israel's next move. Right after being rescued at the Red Sea and worshiping God, having this kind of like what you might think of as like this mountaintop experience with God, immediately after that they begin rebelling and grumbling against God. So we want to look at both of those because both of those are important moments in the, the book of Exodus. Lord, we're so grateful to you for this day. Thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are a good God who's made a good world, and we thank you for all the blessings we receive in it. But Lord God, we also want to thank you that you are a redeeming God, that you see us in our sin, you see the world in its sin, and yet you have chosen and made covenant and made promise to ultimately come into this world and to redeem sinners like us. Lord, we ask you that you would just remind us of your grace. Show us, Lord, our sin tonight, but remind us of our grace and also remind us of how important worship is and that it's so good to worship a God who is gracious and merciful with us. And we pray that in that we would not only uh, love you more, but Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts to become attuned to worshiping you more, not just in the words that we say, but that our lives would glorify you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at Exodus 15 and worship in Exodus 15. Again, God has just delivered Israel through the Red Sea, and Israel breaks into 21 verses of praise and worship. 21 verses of praise and worship here in Exodus 15. And I want to point out two really important things from Exodus 15. The first is that worship is repeated. We see this in Exodus 15 and also beyond Exodus 15. The worship here was repetitive. But the second thing about it is that it was God-centered. It focused on who God is and what God had done. It was repetitive worship, but it also was God-centered, focusing on who God is and what he had done. So we see this repetition in the fact that Moses starts in Exodus 15.1 by saying, he starts this song of worship by saying, uh, Moses and all the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Later, in Exodus 15.21, Miriam, who's uh, Aaron's uh, sister, she's a prophetess, she begins to lead the women in singing. And what does she say? She says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. When Miriam begins worshiping and leading the women in worship, she uses almost the exact same words that Moses started his worship with. There's repetition here. I think this is the first way that we see repetition, but it's not the only way that we see repetition. Throughout Israel's life and future generations, they would have read this and repeated it as well. This worship was structured in such a way that it was geared for future generations to repeat that they would rehearse these words. They would repeat, remember these words. And why is that? Because some things are worth remembering. Some things are worth repeating. A lot of the time, we can think that worship is largely about our expression, like expressing ourselves to God, expressing our feelings to God. And certainly worship can and should include that component where we express how we feel about God. We tell him that we love him, we adore him, we honor him, we glorify him, we want to see him magnified. And it's okay for that to be a really strong expression from our hearts to our Savior. But 
Biblically speaking here throughout the Old Testament, it's very common for worship to be re repetitive. What it's repetitive about is it's repeating these stories about who God is and what he has done because worship also teaches us. Worship is not just about expressing our emotions to God. It includes that. But worship is also important because it teaches us, teaches us who God is. It reminds us who God is. This was repetitive worship throughout Israel's history because there are certain things about who God is and what he has done that were worth repeating and worth remembering. Because many times in our lives, our circumstances change and we start seeing our life through our current circumstances and we might forget the larger realities of who God is and what he has done. And many times we need worship to reorient us, reorient us towards those truths and those realities. And what are these truths and realities? It's realities about who God is and, and what he's done. Look at Exodus 15 verses 1 through 3. These are the opening verses of this song that Moses leads the people in. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Look at all this language that's so God-centered. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has triumphed gloriously. What's he done? He's thrown the horse and the rider, the Egyptian armies, into the sea. He's focusing on God's action and what he's done. Because of this, the Lord is my strength. I've seen him deliver me with his strength. He's my song. What is my song? What is it I will rejoice in? I will rejoice in the Lord. He is my song. He has become my salvation. Israel's recognizing here as Moses is leading in worship. We are not our own salvation. This is the hand of God that has accomplished this. We will praise him. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God. This is the God who promised to generations past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would redeem this people and raise up this people. And here, this God has been faithful to his covenant promises. Let's praise that God who has been faithful to my father and to my ancestors and the ancestors that he's made this promise to. And the Lord is a man of war. God is like a divine warrior going to battle against his own enemies, these false gods, but also going to battle against the enemy of God's people, those who have oppressed God's people, and redeeming them, delivering them from slavery and from oppression. God is powerful and is a God of war in the face of injustice. And this is good news. This is God-centered worship, focusing on who he is and what he has done. It's so God-centered that Israel says, we've come to recognize who God is. We've seen his deeds in his way of redeeming us from slavery in Egypt, and now we know who he is. Verse 11 says this, who is like you, O Lord? As they're singing this praise to God, they say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? So earlier in Exodus, God said, Moses, as you do these deeds, as, as I do these deeds uh, in delivering you and, your, and the people from slavery in Egypt, as I do these deeds, Egypt will know that I am the Lord. But now Israel themselves, they've seen God's deeds and they say, 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Israel has come to recognize and to know who God is. He is the God over all other gods. They've come to see him for who he is as they've seen his, his deeds. And they're worshiping this God for who he is and for how he has made himself known. And one of the ways that he's made himself known, they even worship him for this in, in this very song. They talk about how Pharaoh's chariots uh, have been cast into the sea. Look at how God has communicated himself. That this Pharaoh, who was thought of as somewhat divine like himself in Egypt, he's somewhat godlike. He says at the beginning of Exodus, as he sees that the people of Israel are a threat to his power, he commands that the firstborn of Israel be thrown into the Nile. But yet, that doesn't happen. In God's providence and God's plan, and through the cunning of some Hebrew midwives, Israel's firstborn are not drowned in the Nile. But who ends up dying in a watery grave? This seemingly divine king of Pharaoh, who's thought to have all this power, the God of slaves, the God of Israel, triumphs over him. And the very command that Pharaoh gave for Israel's firstborn to be drowned, he actually ends up dying in this way. It's this ironic and really powerful way of saying, actually, God, the God of Israel, is in control. He is the one that has power over Egypt, Egypt's Pharaoh, and Egypt's gods. And Israel recognizes this, and so they worship their God, who is over all gods. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. So this is very God-centered worship, and I think this is encouraging for us. When we think about coming to service, sometimes we think, I don't feel like worshiping. There are times when I, as a pastor at this church who leads worship, will say, I don't feel like worshiping today. But I lean into worship. I still come, not just because it's my job, but because I know that rehearsing, remembering, repeating truths about who God is and what he has done is so important for reshaping, reteaching, and remolding our hearts. To not see our lives, to see our lives through circumstances around us, but to see our lives through the lens of a higher truth of who God is, the higher realities of what he has done and what he is doing in his world and what he will ultimately do when he comes again. Worship is not primarily about feeling it. Worship is about rehearsing, repeating these God-centered truths. And as we focus on those truths, remind one another of those truths, all of a sudden we find that our hearts are tuned, are shaped, formed to love this God, to be encouraged, to be reminded of these truths. So much so that Peter Enns, a scholar of Exodus, says, we don't go to service and worship erupts out of our mood. Rather, we repeat these truths. We remember these truths, and it creates that mood of joy, of hope, and trust. Worship erupts as we remember these truths. It's important to come together to repeat and rehearse all these truths about who God is and what he's done. Here at Grace Downtown, when we do worship, um, we often try to follow this arc where we remember that God is our creator and God is holy. We usually have a song or two that focuses on that. Then we remember that we are sinners, that we are fallen, and we grieve over our sin. We confess our sin. We grieve over the pain that sin has brought into the world, and we lament over that. But then we focus on the fact that God has sent Jesus to forgive us of our sins, but that God has also sent Jesus to redeem all things. And then we focus that, on the fact that Jesus will come again and will restore all things when he returns. That's a story that's worth repeating every single week. 
That's a story that's worth remembering every single week. And I'd like to encourage you on those days when you don't feel like worshiping. You're not alone. There are days that I don't feel like worshiping. But these are truths that are worth remembering. These are truths that are worth repeating to one another so that we see our lives through that larger picture of who God is and what he's doing. And then we begin to make decisions. We live our lives. We trust God because we remember who he is and what he's doing. It causes worship to grow in us as we remember these things. So God has delivered Israel from Egypt at the Red Sea, and there's this great worship experience. But let's move on to the second half of our sermon for today. Uh, God's delivered his people. There's this great kind of like amazing worship experience. What do we expect next? We expect that if Pharaoh's out of the picture, Israel's been delivered from these terrible circumstances. They're no longer in slavery. Egypt's gods have been shown to be vacuous, false, powerless. And God is now going to deliver his people. He's he's going to move them uh, into the promised land so that they can be his representatives, be a kingdom of priests. And they'll receive his law and they'll uh, follow his law and experience his presence as he dwells among them. And as they live these righteous and holy lives, they'll experience God's blessing. And then they're going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. We expect all these good things. We expect so many good things. Because nothing's standing in their way, right? Pharaoh's out of the way. They don't have to worry about slavery anymore. Egypt's gods have been shown to be powerless. There's nothing standing in their way, right? Well, what happens is, immediately, right after this powerful worship experience, within like three days, Israel begins to show their rebelliousness. They start grumbling against their their redeemer. They start complaining. And this isn't just mild grumbling. Some of the language actually in Hebrew is quarreling. It's translated grumbling, but the literal translation is quarreling. They're quarreling with God. So let's look at these three episodes. There are three different places where we see Israel grumbling against God uh, in the next several uh, verses, in the next several chapters. Exodus 15 verses 23 through 25 says this, When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So in context, what's happening here is they've just praised God uh, at at the Red Sea, praising him for delivering them. Wandering in the desert for three days, they've run out of water. They finally find some water at Mara and think, great, now we've got some water to drink. But the water's bitter. Can't be, can't be consumed. And they start complaining. The people grumbled against Moses. Now what's interesting is that they grumble against Moses, but as these go on, it's clear they're not just grumbling with Moses. Their complaint is not primarily with Moses. Their complaint is ultimately with God. And so God... Uh, ultimately provides a way for the water to be made sweet and they're able to drink. Then there's another episode. They travel a little further in the desert. This is Exodus 16, the next chapter, verses 2 and 3, and it says this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots... And ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Just days after being redeemed, 
and rescued at the Red Sea and having this powerful worship experience. They complain about not having water, and now they complain about not having the right kind of food or having enough food. They grumble against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they want it, it's like they're longing for Egypt. They, they wish that they could go back. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. At least there we have these meat pots and bread to the full. What an amazing turnaround to start complaining and saying, could we just go back to where we were? We were enslaved. At least then we had meat and bread. After God has already shown himself to be so powerful, to be so present with Israel, and to continue to deliver them, they're questioning him. In Exodus 16, 8, just a few verses later, it makes it clear who their grumbling is against. It said initially in verses 2 and 3 that they grumbled against Aaron, uh, Moses and Aaron. But Exodus 16, 8 says this, Your grumbling is not against us. Moses is saying, look, you're not grumbling against us. Your grumbling is against the Lord. Your grumbling and your quarreling is actually with God. You're not trusting him. You're arguing with him. And then the third episode is in Exodus 17, verses 3 through 7. It says, The people thirsted there for water. They've traveled again in the wilderness. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Again, they're lacking water, and they don't trust God. They don't believe God will provide, even though God has been present and provided miraculously in many ways already. They're not trusting him, and they complain. And look again what happens here in Exodus 17, 7. Moses says, your argument isn't with me. Your quarrel and your grumbling is not with me. Exodus 17, 7 says this. Moses called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see how strong this challenge is against God? They're questioning whether God is with them, among them or not. They're questioning his goodness. Are you going to be present with us in the wilderness? Are you going to continue to provide for us? They're testing the Lord, questioning the Lord, doubting the Lord, not proving faithful to trust him. So these are three episodes of grumbling that scholars like, again, Peter ends, he'll describe these as not just like having some doubts, some honest doubts about God. This moves into rebellion, disobedient rebellion against this God who's been so faithful to provide for them. So what's powerful is that at the beginning of Exodus, God wants Israel to be this uh, blessed people who are also a blessing to the nations, but there's a question, there's a threat. Will they be able to receive God's blessing and be a blessing to the nations? It seems doubtful because they're enslaved in Egypt. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh's gods, and the slavery in Egypt all threaten whether Israel will receive God's blessing and then be a blessing to the nations of the world. But now... After they've been delivered through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's gone. Pharaoh's gods have been defeated. Israel is not enslaved anymore, and yet there's still a threat to whether Israel will receive God's blessing and be a blessing to the people of the world, and it's because Israel has a heart problem. Israel themselves struggle to have hearts that are faithful to their faithful God, to their redeeming God. 
Some Israelites, in fact, in this moment, in these grumbling episodes, it's not just that they grumbled. Some actually disobeyed God. God said, okay, I'm going to provide for you. He gives them water in the wilderness. He gives them food in the wilderness. And he gave them some commands for how to receive this food. And even then, when God gave commands for how to receive this food, the people disobeyed God. And so in Exodus 16, 28, uh, the Lord says to Moses, in the face of people disobeying God, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? God says to Moses, how long will you, and it's not Moses who's disobeyed, but Moses is kind of representative of the people, and he's saying, these people aren't obeying me. How long will you people refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? We've seen that language before, where in the text, God asks a question, how long will you refuse? But look at where we've seen this before and who this was being asked of. In Exodus 10, 3, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? The very question that God has to pose to this disobedient, godless Pharaoh, who is hard-hearted, how long will you refuse God's will? He now poses to his own people, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Here, God's people are in in the wilderness. Pharaoh's not an issue. Uh, Egypt's gods are not at play. They're not an influence here. Slavery's not a problem here. And yet, Israel's heart comes to the forefront, and their heart is starting to look like Pharaoh's heart. They have a heart that refuses to do God's will, refuses to trust God, refuses to follow him and to be faithful to him. In Israel's lack of trust, in their lack of faith, in their lack of obedience, they are showing that they are rebellious like Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not the only person in Exodus that has a heart problem, that has a hard heart, that has a disobedient heart. God's own chosen people in the wilderness have nothing to blame their hard-heartedness on. They can't blame it on Pharaoh. They can't blame it on Egypt's gods. They're not at play. In the wilderness... The wickedness of their hearts comes to the fore when there's nothing else to blame it on. And in this way, Exodus is like a mirror. Exodus is like a mirror that is held up in front of us as we read about Israel's disobedient and wayward hearts, their fickleness, their lack of faith. We see ourselves. We see our own fickleness, our own lack of faith, our own waywardness. You see, Israel didn't just need to be rescued from their external circumstances— as they are out in the desert and their external circumstances continue to get better and better and better. No Pharaoh, no slavery, no question about the power of the Egyptian gods. All of those things have been taken care of. And yet there's still a problem, and the problem is their hearts. The wilderness reveals that they didn't just need to be delivered from slavery. The wilderness reveals that they needed to be delivered from their sinful and wayward and wicked hearts. And we also find ourselves in the text. Our own sinfulness, our own waywardness, and that we need God's deliverance just like Israel needed it. It invites us to consider our sin. Exodus here, with Israel's unfaithfulness, their waywardness, invites us to be bold and brave and to ask God, is there any wicked and wayward way in me? And the answer is yes. It invites us to embrace that truth about ourselves. And for a long time in our culture, I think people were not comfortable squaring with our sinfulness. For a long time, I think in Western culture and especially American culture, 
uh, we had high hopes in human nature that people are basically good. You hear it in all kinds of phrases and uh, tropes that are used in, in our time. And you even see it in a lot of our heroes. Traditionally, a lot of heroes in American stories were these really good people. They're clearly good. They didn't question what was good or evil. They didn't struggle with vices. They were able to recognize when there's something evil in the world or something bad going on. They were courageous to go confront it and deal with it. They're these really kind of simple, straightforward heroes. Very good, always recognizing what's wrong, being able to go toe-to-toe against the, the, the evil in the world. But if you look at today's hero, there's something called the anti-hero that's been showing up for quite some time. In the stories we tell, whether books, especially movies nowadays, our heroes are complex and flawed individuals. They do some good, but we also see them do some terrible things. We see these, hero, these anti-heroes in today's story struggle, struggle to understand what is good, what is right. I don't know. We see them struggle with bad inclinations, bad habits. They have flaws. They look like us. And I was reading an article about it recently, uh, a psychology article online. Why are we kind of animated by these anti-heroes? Why do we keep watching stories about them? And this article said, their moral complexity mirrors our own. (laughs) We're drawn into these stories because these anti-heroes look a little more real. They're believable. They're like us. Why are they believable? They're flawed because we're flawed. We identify with them because in these anti-heroes who try to do good but also struggle with bad and have their own flaws and limitations and their weaknesses, we see our own flaws and weaknesses and we're like, I'm like that. And that seems more true to reality and we're drawn into these stories. For a long time, we've imagined that we could be good people if we try hard enough, if we get enough education, if we just have the right circumstances around us, if we just have enough courage. But time and experience keep reminding us that the Bible is right. That down the center, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, the line of good and evil goes right down the center of every human being and down the heart of every human being. We're flawed people who are broken and have evil and wayward and wicked hearts. And our hearts can lead us into terrible things. Our hearts long for freedom, And yet, so many times when our hearts pursue certain things that we think will lead us into freedom, it actually leads us into bondage. How many times do people think that they'll walk in these amazing fields of freedom and joy and pleasure as they pursue lust, but they find themselves later addicted, dealing with sexual addiction? How many people in our culture are looking for freedom, freedom from constraints, freedom from rules, freedom from laws, and so they pursue all these things, but they find themselves in a host of different kinds of addiction? We have a culture right now that's really struggling with addiction, but it's also a culture that longs for freedom. Our hearts, we long for freedom, but as we wander away from God and following, follow our hearts leading and inclinations, our hearts are wicked and deceptive, deceitful, and they can lead us into paths that actually lead us into greater bondage. And often in these circumstances, we hurt ourselves, but we also hurt people around us, wound people around us. In Israel's grumbling, God gives us a mirror to see ourselves, and he invites us to be honest and say, God, search me. Show me my waywardness. Show me where I don't trust you. Show me where I follow my own heart's inclinations and and lead myself and others into, into sin and into trouble. But in Exodus, we also see some good news. As we close, I want to close with this really good news. Exodus is a mirror that is held up in front of us and invites us to 
to examine our own sinfulness, our own waywardness. But Exodus 15 through 17 also shows us a picture of God. Look at how God responds to the Israelites in these moments of grumbling. Whether they needed water, whether they're grumbling about not having enough food or the right kind of food, look at how God responds. So these two cases where they ask for water, where they need water, God didn't write them off. Nowhere in the text does God write them off. He doesn't punish them with lightning bolts. He doesn't end his covenant with his covenant people. Instead, he provides water for them. When the waters were bitter, Moses calls out to God, and there's a way made for them to have water that's drinkable and that's sweet and that's good and will nourish them and will quench their thirst. He provides for them. When they complain again about not having water, he provides water for them miraculously. When they complain about food in the wilderness, God doesn't write them off. He doesn't punish them with lightning bolts. He doesn't end his covenant with them. Instead, he miraculously provided meat and daily bread. On a daily basis, he provides for their needs. I think what's really powerful about this is if you remember that in Exodus 4.22, Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel, the entire nation, my firstborn son. This is a picture of a father walking in the wilderness with his son. And as his son is grumbling against him, his child proves to be wayward and disobedient complaining, not trusting, not believing. This patient father provides for his children in the wilderness. What a picture of God's grace. What a picture of God's patience with us. What a picture of God's gracious provision for us. Even when we're complaining and grumbling and challenging him and rebelling against him. This is a picture of of a gracious Heavenly Father who still provides for His people, who wants to teach His children to trust Him and is patient in urging His children, you can trust me, watch my track record. I'm faithful to my covenant. I'm faithful to my promises. You can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust me. He gives them reasons in His patience to trust Him and to lean into Him. He doesn't meet them with immediate anger, but with gracious patience provision. What a good heavenly father we have today. And there's foreshadowing of what he would ultimately provide. So look, he provides this manna in the wilderness, this bread. It was daily bread to meet their daily needs as a way to say, your greatest provision is not in your resources. It's not in your armies. It's not in your power. It's not in your wisdom. It's in my presence. And as I am with you, I will daily provide for you. But ultimately, what does he really need to provide? What God really needs to provide is not just for those daily material needs. He needs to provide a way to heal and correct our wayward hearts. And that's ultimately what he provides. This bread that is provided on a daily basis foreshadows the time that Jesus would come. And in the book of John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You don't just need your daily bread made from wheat. You don't just need that. What you need is a deep spiritual work. You need me to heal your wounded heart. You need me to heal the evil, to forgive you of your sin and your rebellion and all the ways that you wander. And I am that bread of life. I will go to the cross. 
I will die in your place. I will be the sacrifice for your sin, for your rebelliousness. I will take that on myself so that as you place your faith in me, as you ask for forgiveness, I've provided a way for you to be forgiven. And I will give you eternal life as you place your faith in me. We have a heavenly father and his grace comes forward in the books of, book of Exodus, but we really see it in the person of Jesus as he becomes the bread of life, broken on the cross for our sin. Today, if you're not a Christian and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to place your faith in Jesus. As you ask God to show you your sin and you have that painful experience of him showing you your sin, he wants you to go beyond that. He wants to lead you through to the other side, which is to show you his grace for you. This God is gracious in the face of our sin. He wants you to see your sin so that you can ultimately call upon him for forgiveness, receive that forgiveness, and receive eternal life to be adopted into his family, to experience his spirit coming into your heart and your life, not only washing you of your sin, but giving you a new heart today. You can place your faith in Jesus and experience that grace. He's provided that because he loves you. If you are a Christian, and this week as you hear this sermon, you're reminded of your own sin, your own waywardness, I encourage you, allow God to shine a light on that. Allow God to put his finger on that and to highlight that so that God then can bring his grace to that sin. God wants to highlight our sin, my sin and your sin, so that he can then bring his grace to bear. There's forgiveness for that sin. There's redemption from our sin. There's redemption from our rebellion. And on the other side, he wants to, to make us his children, adopt us into his family, give us eternal life, give us hope, give us joy, give us peace. All of that comes by his grace. Let's call upon him for that grace. And then let's look forward to when we can worship together again. Let's look forward to when we can worship and remember these truths and, and be reminded of these truths in song. But in the meantime, let's be in worship during the week. Whether that's listening to worship songs or just being in the scriptures and being reminded of God's truths. Or shooting somebody a text, getting together with a friend and reminding them of all the reasons we have to worship God. Let's remember these heavenly realities this week as we thank God for his grace. We thank God for who he is and all that he's done. Lord, we want to thank you tonight that you've proven yourself to be such a gracious God. Lord, we thank you that you shine a light on our sin. We thank you that you reveal it, that you won't allow us to live and exist easily in our squalor where we hurt ourselves, we distance ourselves from you, we hurt other people with our sin. We thank you, Lord God, that all the ways that sin is painful and problematic and hurtful, you actually want to reveal it because you want to weed that out. You don't want us just to sit in that squalor. We thank you, Lord God, that in your grace you highlight our sin. But Lord, we also thank you that on the other side of showing us our sin is deep, deep grace. You want us to experience forgiveness. You want us to experience redemption and new life and ultimately eternal life with you and with others. We pray that you would remind us of your grace for us tonight. Lord, show us our sin, but then show us your grace and the power of the cross, the power of your forgiveness, and show us the new life you would have us to walk in and the joy you would have us to walk in, the eternal life you have for us. And Lord, we pray that you would also then cause us to be able to just have these words on our lips regularly about who you are and what you've done. 
Help us to remember regularly who you are and what you've done. Whether we do that here at service or community group or throughout the week in our own lives, help us to be people of worship who center ourselves on these God-centered realities. And may we find hope there. May we find forgiveness and joy there. May we also find, Lord God, uh, just a sense of being prodded to worship you and serve you in this world. And we pray that in these things, as we worship you, as we praise you, as we serve you, you would be glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you all tonight. Look forward to being with you again next week. Have a great week.